We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And now we are going through the Mishkat. So, yeah, so we have one more um, uh, person that we were supposed to talk about, about um, the teachers uh, and the writers of this book. And then after that, we'll go into the depictions of the scholars of hadith. Right. So first, we'll talk about Allama Wadiuddin Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Khatib al-Umri al-Tabarizi, rahimahullah. And he's a compiler of the Mishkat al-Masabir, the book that we're studying right now. So his name is Muhammad. Um, some people have said that he was Mahmud, but it's more correct that his name was Muhammad. And his kunya was Abu Abdullah. And his title was Wadiuddin. His father was Abdullah, his family name was Umri, and he was known as Al-Khatib al-Tabrizi. Um, he was a great scholar and a muhaddith, uh, which is a scholar of hadith, the sayings of the Prophet And he was a front-ranking orator and a very pious and righteous man who was highly well-mannered, just like his predecessors. He, le- he learned sorry, from great scholars, and among his own students was Mubarak Shah Sadi, rahimahullah. <coughs> His greatest book that he wrote is the book that we're studying, which is Mishkat al-Masabih, um, more known as Mishkat. Uh, it is recognized as the basic book of hadith, um, and the recognition according to this book uh, may be gauged from the number of his translations, commentaries, and marginal notes. Um, it's a lengthy list, but he starts mentioning a lot of different um, books that are translations or uh, are derived from the Mishkat. Um, and so he died in the year 737 uh, AH, uh, but the exact year is not known. Um, it is known definitely that he finished compiling this book uh, on Friday in Ramadan, which is a seven, which was in 737 AH, uh, and so uh, it's most likely that he passed away in 737 AH. Or after. Or after, yeah. And then uh, 737 AH, give or take, is what according to the Gregorian calendar? Uh, in the it's uh, like what, like the. 15, 1600? Yeah, around there. So, yeah. yeah. And we just think of it, so when does Hedra begin according to our calendar? 1400 years ago. Yeah, so what year? So, easiest way to remember is when does the prophet die? Uh, 673. So he dies about 632. 632, sorry. So, Hedra is at about uh, 620. Okay. And so, when is he born? Uh, 570. And so, how old is he when he gets his first revelations? Uh, 25. 40. Sorry, sorry, 40. Yeah, yeah he, he marries uh, Khadija when he's 25, 25, and then he gets his revelation when he's 40, yeah. Yeah, so that would be 610. Yeah. He's in Makkah for, give or take, 12, 13 years. Yeah, yeah. and then Medina, 10. Yeah. <coughs> Continue. Uh, okay, so now we're going to talk about the scholars of hadith. Uh, we'll start with Imam al-Bukhari. So Imam al-Bukhari is the compiler of Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, which is one of the most well-known books of hadith. So the real name of Imam al-Bukhari is Muhammad bin Ismail bin Ibrahim bin al-Mughira bin Bartiz bin al-Bukhari. Um, he was born after Asr prayer on Friday, um, either the 13th or 16th of Shawwal in 194 AH. Um, he is known through the Jaffi people because his great-grandfather had embraced Islam at the hands of a righteous man who was of the Jaffi tribe, uh, and his name was Yaman Jaffi. He was a chief of Bukhara, and whoever became a Muslim at his hands traced himself to this tribe. Therefore, Imam Bukhari was also known as Jaffi. What does Bukhari mean? Uh, it's from the person of Bukhara, right? Yeah, which is where? Uh, it's isn't it in Persia? Or, no, it's around like Uzbekistan area. Yeah, it's like Central Asia. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Imam Bukhari was losing his eyesight in his childhood, and this caused sadness and anxiety to his mother. Uh, one night when she was sad and dejected, she saw Sayyidina Ibrahim salam in a dream. And he said to her, Be happy, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard your cry of pain and shown mercy on your tears. He accepted your supplication and restored your son's eyesight. When she woke up in the morning, she saw uh, her son's eyes bright with sight. From the age of 10, he studied at the Mekta, um, and he had the extraordinary ability that whenever he remembered hadith, he heard, uh, and it was since then that he commenced, uh, sorry, commenced memorizing the hadith. Um, and this isn't written in the book, but I remember hearing it um, from, I think it was uh, Sheikh Omar Suleiman, uh, who was mentioning, he gave a talk actually of Imam Bukhari two weeks ago, uh, and he was mentioning how Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, um, was asked by a group of people to comment on hadith, and so what they did was that they deliberately tricked him uh, with the chains of narrations. So like, for example, if they gave like a narration uh, they would say, like, so-and-so person got this narration from such-and-such. So, and, such. and so they had ten people present ten different, uh, like, uh, hadith with different chains of narrations. All the chains were scrambled. And so uh, Imam Bukhari, when he was asked to do that, uh, they presented these chains with him, and he said, I've never heard this hadith before. I've never heard this hadith before. And for all 100 hadith, <coughs> he said, I've never heard this before. I've never heard this before. I've never heard this before. So the people around him were like really confused. They're like, what type of hadith is this person that he's never like heard these hadith, or he's just flat out rejecting them. But then after the last person goes, he goes back to the first person that he spoke to and corrects each of the 100 hadith in order, um, basically telling them the wrong thing that they said and then telling them the correct answer. So, subhanAllah, he had the ability to memorize, you know, who was speaking to him in what order, what wrong answer they gave, and the correct train of narration for each of the hundred hadith. So that was just a side note that I thought I'd bring in. But anyway, um, as he was studying in the maktab, um, he, as I said, he had an extraordinary ability in memorizing hadith. <clears throat> and when he finished, uh, when he finished the maktab, he learned that there was a scholar and muhaddith at Bukhara whose name was Dakhli rahimahullah, who was very famous. So he went to go to him. Uh, this man Dakhli, the scholar Dakhli rahimahullah, used to read over to people from his book on the science of hadith um, and in which he had recorded some certain hadith. One day as he was narrating hadith, he began with its line of transmission, uh, Sufyan on the authority of Abu Zubair, who on the authority of Ibrahim, whereby um, Imam al-Ghazali, uh, sorry, Imam Bukhari rahimahullah interrupted him by saying, Abu Zubair was, uh, never reported from Ibrahim. Dakhli <coughs> rahimahullah heard this and he was unsure about this chain. So he went home and brought the book and confirmed that indeed he was wrong and asked the child to disclose the line of transmission. Bukhari rahimahullah said, it is Sufyan from Abu Zubair who from Adi who on the authority of Ibrahim. Dakhli rahimahullah looked into the book and said, Surely you speak the truth. The senad is as you say, or the chain of narration is as you say. So Imam Bukhari rahimahullah was 11 years old when he did this. And Dakhli rahimahullah was amazed that such a young boy was able to remember a senad to that extent and had such extraordinary memory. So as um, Imam Ghazali reached, uh, sorry, as Imam Bukhari reached uh, an older age at the age of 16, he memorized the books of Ibn Mubarak rahimahullah, and he went to Mecca with his mother and his brother uh, Ahmad to perform Hajj. After performing Hajj, while his mother and brother returned home, he stayed behind to study Hadith. 
when he turned 18, he began to write books, and one of his books was Kitab al-Tariqh, um, and it dealt with the achievements of the companions, radiallahu anhum, and the tabi'een, rahimahullah, um, in their lives. And as he prepared the manuscript, he polished it at Medina, near the grave of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Actually, uh, Kitab al-Tariqh is a little bit different than that. It's... Uh it's uh, the category we put it uh, as tabaqat literature, which is basically biographies of everybody in those chains. That's essentially what it is. Everybody in the chains of hadith that he was studying, yeah. or just in general? In the, in the, in the chains okay. of the, the hadith, yeah. Okay. And so, Hamid ibn Ismail, rahimahullah, was a distinguished muhaddithin when uh, Imam al Bukhari went to go study uh, to him. Uh, and so he said, I would accompany him, but he never took pen and ink with him. I pointed to him uh, that while he went to the teacher very eagerly to learn a hadith, he did not take any writing implements with him. How could he hope to learn then if he wished to memorize hadith? He must carry pen and ink and write down what the teacher said. After 16 days, Imam Bukhari asked me to take the hadith that I had written during the time. I had written down 15,000 hadith during this period. And Imam al-Bukhari began to narrate all those hadith from memory while I held the written material before me. Instead of not prompting him anywhere, I had to correct my written text here and there from what he narrated. He narrated the 15,000 hadith without a single stammer or mistake, subhanAllah. And then he remarked that we supposed that he was wasting his time. Uh, I realized then that he had a great future. So this is... Um, a narration by Hamid ibn Ismail rahimahullah. So here, here's the interesting part. Uh, the narration is speaking about how precise Imam Bukhari's narration is. But the question is, is the narration about Imam Bukhari accurate? Yeah. But inshallah it is. Yeah. Um, so Sahih al-Bukhari, like I said, was the biggest achievement of Imam Bukhari. It's the most correct book after the Noble Quran. Um, one day, Imam Bukhari and his fellow students were attending a session with their teacher, Ishaq bin Rahwai, uh, and the students, were, uh, while discussing the subject among themselves, wished that someone might compile a collection of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in a brief manner, and that a hadith should be authentic to the highest degree. In that way, all the authentic hadith would be at one place, and the secrets of a hadith would be able to trace them without any reservation or hesitation and abide by them. No one would have to re-verify those hadith from any other scholar. The students dispersed, but Imam Bukhari pondered over this suggestion and resolved to undertake this work. He began writing the book. At that time, he had a treasure of about 600,000 ahadith. He sifted the weaker ahadith from the authentic, and he began to write down the authentic hadith in his book. And in doing so, he omitted all the ahadith that were weak or that did not meet the standards of authenticity. Soon, the wish of the students of Ibn Rahwai rahimahullah, was given practical shape. The Jami' al-Bukhari was compiled. It was a practice of Imam Bukhari while writing this book that he first had a ghusl, which is like a bath, uh, offered two raka'ah, optional prayer, and then wrote down a hadith. There is no hadith um, in Bukhari which Imam Bukhari may have written without having done this process. It took him 16 years to complete this task, and in his life about 90,000 people had the honor of learning a hadith from him directly. Um, the governor of Bukhara at that time was Khalid ibn Ahmad al-Za'li, he sent message to Imam Bukhari that he should visit his home and teach his sons um, the books, uh, like Kitab al-Tariq, uh, etc. And Imam Bukhari sent him a reply, this is the learning of hadith, and I consider it a mockery 
of hadith that I should come to your house to teach hadith. If you wish, send your sons to my gathering so that they will sit with other students and learn the hadith. So what's amazing is that like he, what he basically said is that if you want to learn, you have to come to me. I'm not coming to you. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's you know, it's very amazing because he was speaking to the governor of Bukhara in that manner, mm -hmm. and it goes to show you the level of the scholars uh, compared to you know. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, the governors have that executive authority, but the scholars are way more noble in their in their uh, knowledge of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, for the governor, the response was nothing short of a slap to the face, but he sent word to the imam, I'm prepared to send my sons to you, but you must ensure that when they are with you, no one else should come to you. Rather, a sentry should stand at the door to bar entry to other people to the class. It is not acceptable to me that when my sons attend your class, the common people and the lower strata should sit next to them. So this goes exactly with what I was just saying. Imam Bukhari refused to abide by, abide by the governor's condition because, you know, when you have knowledge, it doesn't matter if you're high ranking or if you're not, you know, that knowledge has to be dispersed to everyone. As a teacher, you can't limit the knowledge that you give just because someone has a higher social status or higher, you know, uh, a better ancestry than someone else or is richer than someone else. You disseminate the knowledge to everyone equal. So Imam um, Bukhari refused to abide by this condition. He said the knowledge and the legacy of the Prophet and the whole Ummah has an equal share in it. No one is preferred over the other in receiving it. The governor Bukhari was infuriated with this answer and he resolved to teach the stubborn, quote-unquote, stubborn scholar the lesson of his life. There has never been lack of such scholars who smothered their conscience for the sake of worldly wealth uh, or personal favors and submit to authority for that. They not only do that, but also willingly bring innocent and sincere scholars to disrepute to achieve their ends. Uh, the same thing happened to Imam Bukhari. There were scholars who seemed to be his friends, but when given the opportunity to gain personal favors, they helped the governor and began to criticize Imam Bukhari and question his standing. They assisted the governor in drawing out a list of accusations against him so that he was, ex so that he was exiled from Bukhara. When Imam Bukhari was going out of the city, he did not say anything but Oh Allah, I put this affair in your hands. Hardly a month had passed um, when the governor Khalid bin Ahmad was deposed by the Khalifa and not only was he dismissed, but he was also made to ride a donkey throughout the city. Basically, that he was humiliated completely. One of the scholars, Harith ibn Waraqa, who had conspired with the governor against um, uh, the Imam, was also dishonored severely. Another scholar who was part of the conspiracy faced painful punishment from Allah and all his children died. Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, went to Nishapur but his self-respect and independent nature annoyed the governor there too. <laughs> he had to leave that place after he finally settled at Khartan near Samarkand, which is in Baghdad, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was... Wait, wait, uh, Samarkand is, in, uh, is still in uh, Central Asia. Okay. Samarkand is in... You know, you know what Samarkand means? No. It's like the land of candy. Really? Wow. And it was at this place that his living days were over, and he died on the last day of uh, Ramadan, the night preceding Eid al-Fitr, uh, 265 AH, and the age of, of 62 years. Which is roughly what year-ish in our calendar? In our calendar, it would be like the 1300s. Or 800, give or oh, take. 800, okay. And so I'm, I'm asking those things just to get a sense of the chronology. Mm -hmm. So Mishkath is coming around around 1300. Yeah. Bukhari, Bukhari is That's around 800, 800, so about 200 years after the, the Prophet, yeah. Yeah. He had many teachers. Distinguished among his teachers were Ishaq bin Rahwai, who we talked about, Ali bin Madani, uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal, and Yahya bin Mu'in, uh, 
Um, Khatib Abu Bakr Baghdadi has quoted uh, Abdul Wahid Tarawi uh, as narrating, I saw the Prophet in a dream. He was with his companions and was waiting for someone. I offered salam to the Prophet and the Prophet responded to it. And I asked him, O Messenger of Allah, for whom do you wait here? He said, We wait Muhammad bin Ismail. After some time, I learned of the death of Imam Bukhari and I worked out that he had died about the same time I had seen the Prophet wait for Imam Bukhari. Shaykh Abdul Haq Dehlawi had mentioned the dream in his translation and also disclosed that when he was buried, the fragrance of musk came out of the grave. The sweet smell continued to emanate many days thereafter from the earth of the grave. Many people have seen in their dreams that the Prophet associated Sahih al-Bukhari with himself. Thus, Muhammad ibn Ahmad Marwazi was once sleeping in the passage between the Rukan and Maqam Ibrahim in the Kaaba. Prophet told him in a dream, O Abu Zayd, how long will you give lessons from the book of Shafi'i? Why do you not teach from my book? He became fearful and submitted, Messenger of Allah, I give my life for you. Which is your book that I may give lessons from it? And the Prophet said, Jami' Muhammad bin Ismail. This is Sahih al-Bukhari. Um, a similar dream is also noted by the Imam of the Haramain. Imam Bukhari also wrote many other books. The most noble and worthy, of course, is Sahih Bukhari, as we mentioned, um, which has earned a never-failing acclaim in the entire Islamic world. The other book is Kitab al-Tariqh, which we talked about. Another one is Kitab al-Adab. And a fourth is Kitab Rafa Yadain. Um, there are many other books written by him, uh, and they speak highly of his knowledge and his mm -hmm. expertise. So if you were to sum up uh, Imam al-Bukhari bullet points, what would be some of the key bullet points? Um, he was a muhaddith. Mm -hmm. um, he compiled one of the greatest books of hadith mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. um, he was an absolute genius in mm -hmm. when it came to memorizing hadith. Mm -hmm. um, he was independent, uh, and he stood up to whatever he thought was wrong, mm -hmm. um, and he gave his life to studying the words of the Prophet Sallallahu mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So now that you're telling me about the person, now let's shift, uh, tell me about the role of Imam al-Bukhari in the tradition. So that essentially what I'm saying is, now you're removing all those personal attributes, and what was his, talk about his work, what did he contribute? So he... Like I said, he was the one who created the most authentic um, book of hadith, um, which the narrations here say that, you know, uh, some people say that the Prophet ﷺ in their dreams has yeah. attributed that book yeah. to himself. Now, as we said before, you know, the authenticity of that can kind of be pulled into question. Yeah. But uh, it still goes to show how powerful of a book it is because, mm -hmm. you know, the book it's... Um, the Mishkat here, like the commentary here, it says that, you know, uh, the purpose of him creating this book was so that people wouldn't have hesitations when going to Sahih al-Bukhari. Yeah. They'd be able to see the hadith, they don't need to verify it again, they already know it's authentic. Mm -hmm. And so that was a contribution that they brought to the Ummah, because yeah. before that, the hadith were scattered, you know, there weren't in compilations, or I mean, they were in compilations, but nothing as big or as authentic as Imam Bukhari. So... We actually, uh, uh, one of the things about the way this is being described, this is why I'm asking, this is probably the reason why I'm asking, is that we do have big collections prior to, prior to Bukhari. Now, what's taking place in Bukhari's era, however, is this transition from verbal tradition to written tradition. Oral that, tradition to verbal. Yeah, so like oral tradition to, to, to written tradition. And, and so... Uh, there's, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Musannaf of, uh, I forgot his name, Sanaani, uh, which, it, which precedes Bukhari and, and Bukhari is essentially taking a lot from it. But 
But so how is Bukhari operating? He is he's growing up with teachers who are teaching him all the material. And so he has compiled of himself six hundred thousand hadith, you know. Of which he is saying a hundred thousand are very authentic. That's not in the material here. And then how many hadith are there in in the actual Jami of, of Imam Bukhari? So only like 5,000? 7,000, yeah. Of which, if you don't include the chain, so the hadith has to include the chain. If you don't include the chain, if you're just looking at the text, the mutton, then it's only about 2,000 hadith that he sifted out of 600,000. Yeah. And and so, so he's growing up with teachers. He's making his own compilation. And then others are also making compilations that are either uh, their own method or responding to him and such. So it's kind of like he's doing a shift in the era of the approach of learning. So people were accusing him of bid'ah, uh, that you're doing an innovation, this is not how we do things. But he is realizing either from the advice of the teacher, probably from the advice of the teacher, that, okay, this is what we need to do now. Otherwise, the risk is that we're going to start scattering all the hadith um, or this region is going to focus on those hadith, this region is going to focus on those hadith. Because you just think about the Sahaba, they moved to different regions, right? As they're as they spreading Islam. Yeah. There are those in Iraq, those that remain in Medina, those elsewhere. And so each each companion spent X amount of time with the Prophet, peace be upon him. Those are going to be the narrations that they're going to share. And the Musanaf of the Razak Sanani, that's what I was thinking of. And, and so, so he's part of this tradition of trying to pull it all into one collection. Okay. Is even like, for example, the, the collection of Muwatta of the Imam, uh, of, of Imam Malik, it's focused on what region? Medina, right? Uh, whereas Abu Hanifa is focused where? He's Iraq. And where's Abu Hanifa? What is the chain of the companion? He's getting his from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. So Bukhari is trying to put it all, all together into one piece. And then he also has his own categorizations and everything too. Okay, good. Uh, do you want to do more? Or do you want to stop here? Uh, we can do more. Okay, let's uh, do Imam Muslim. Yes. So Imam Muslim, his name was um, Imam Muslim ibn al-Hujjaj ibn Muslim. Um, and so his kunya was Abu Hussein. Uh, he was of the Qurayshi, uh, the Qushayri tribe. And his native land was Nishapur. Where's Nishapur? Hi. Such a modern Iran. Nishapur was one of the big centers of learning. I see. He was born in either 204 AH or 206 AH, which is like around 800. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was a great muhaddith uh, and is recognized as an imam in the field. His brilliant students include Abu Hatim Razi, Tirmizi, and Abu Bakr Khuzayma. Uh, Abu Hatim Razi saw Imam Muslim in a dream after his death and asked how he had fared. Imam Muslim, Rahimahullah, disclosed. Allah has bestowed upon me his favors, opened the gates of paradise for me, and the expanse of paradise is at my disposal. I move about whenever, wherever I like. SubhanAllah. After the death of Imam Muslim, Abu Ali Zavni saw a pious, righteous man in his dream and asked him what was behind his salvation. He had some papers in his hand and showed uh, him, he said, because of these. And these were sections of Sahih al-Muslim. It's stated in Kitab Tariq, uh, which is written by Imam Khari. Um, that, this, might, this might be a different kitab tarikh. Okay. Yeah. That one day there was a reference to a hadith in a gathering of Imam Muslim, rahimahullah. The attendants of the assembly asked him about it, but he could not then recall that hadith. So he went to his home and placed before him a basket in which he filled dates. He began looking for the hadith and after some time ate a date from that basket. Finally, he did not find the hadith, but meanwhile he had eaten all the dates in the basket. 
He was so engrossed in looking out for the hadith that he never thought about how he would digest all those dates. He, be, he died because of that on Sunday, the 24th of Rajab, 261 AH. Uh, the greatest achievement of Imam Muslim is Jami'a Sahih al Muslim, a great book of hadith, and like Al Bukhari, the most authentic book. Uh, it has innumerable, he has innumerable other works to his credit. Um, and we'll mention some of these uh, Musnad Kabir, Jamir Kabir, Kitab Al Hilal, um, Kitab Tamiz, uh, so on and so forth. Okay, good. And so, a way to contrast the two, Imam Muslim, um, he's from a different place, so he has different teachers. Yes. And, and <clears throat> so, then the fascinating part uh, comes in when their works overlap. Uh, that part's fascinating, and where their d works don't overlap is also, is also fascinating. So, so um, there was one other point I was going to mention, and also his internal structure is also different than Imam Imam Al Bukhari structure. Okay, do Imam Malik? Or? Yeah, okay. you do Imam Malik. Uh, so Imam Malik, rahimahullah, his name was Malik. His descendant, uh, his descent is traced uh, in this manner: Malik ibn Anas ibn Malik ibn Abu Amir, uh, Abu Amir ibn Amir ibn Al Harith ibn Qayman ibn Kaythal, and so on. <coughs> His great-grandfather, Abu Amr, was a companion of the Prophet However, the scholar Zabri has written in Tajirid al-Sahaba that it is not known that Abu Amr was a companion, but it is confirmed that he was born in the times of the Prophet What does that mean then? He's not a companion, potentially, but he was born at the time of the Prophet. Then how do we make sense of that? Uh, it could be that... Uh, Maybe he accepted his his Islam uh, late in his life, or maybe did not. So, so yeah, one possibility is that <coughs> he became Muslim after the Prophet had died. Yes, yeah. upon him. Another possibility, like what makes someone a companion? How would you answer that? That they see the Prophet and believe in him. Yeah, so they they are seeing the Prophet peace be upon him while in a state of belief, and they remain in belief. And so it could be that he was Muslim. But he never saw the Prophet. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Abu Amr's son Malik was a Tabi'i. Accordingly, we find his transmission from Sayyidina Uthman an, and other companions. Sheikh Muhammad Ibrahim ibn Khalil has written about Abu Amr in Shara Mukhtasar Khalil that he was a companion who participated in every battle of the Prophet except Badr. Imam Malik was from the Asbahi tribe. He was born in 93 AH. Um, it is said about him that he was born two or three years after his mother conceived him. What does that even mean? Uh, <laughs> so that's something that's also said similarly about uh, Imam Shafi. Like it's said of Imam Shafi that he was born with a full set of teeth. Wow. And and so how when we think of pregnancy, we think of pregnancy as being nine months. Right. But then we have these occasional stories throughout history of a person who was born after a two-year, three-year pregnancy. Eleven plus. Mm. There's, there's probably more meaning to that that someone more learned in the tradition would know. But I, I don't know. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, was an ordinate student of hadith and eager to learn about it. And the precise abiding by the sunnah had become his mark of distinction. Uh, in his early days, his family could not afford to pay for his knowledge, for his thirst for knowledge. Uh, and he sold the linking chains in his home to pay for his books. Soon, however, days changed and he found himself in abundance with every kind of comfort available to him. People has cho had chosen him as their center. Imam Malik rahimahullah, was gifted with tremendous memory and he said about himself that he retained whatever he memorized only once. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> he was just 17 years old when he began to teach hadith. 
It is stated that during the initial days of his lessons, a woman of Medina who was pious, noble, and respected died. When her body was being given a bath, the woman who was giving the bath happened to touch the private organ of the body and remarked that the dead woman was an adulteress. The moment she uttered these words, her hand got stuck where it was on the private organ. Try as she would, she could not remove her hand from there. She was very worried, uh, and this was something that, uh, like, that was a very amazing thing to happen. The scholars were consulted, but they were helpless. The people then consulted Imam Malik. His intelligence suggested an instant solution to the problem. He ruled, this woman has, has slandered a pious and chaste woman and accused her of committing adultery. Therefore, the punishment of Allah has descended on her. Uh, the only solution is to give her the prescribed punishment. Accordingly, she was given 80 lashes, after which her hand got free. Since then, people re um, recognize Imam Malik's standing as a great scholar and an able man. Imam Malik has the distinction of having written with his own hands 1,000 ahadith, which no other muhadith has achieved. He had such a great sense of respect that he never relieved himself in the presence of the Haram of Medina. Um, he would go beyond the limits of the city to answer his, his nature call. Uh, however, he could not help uh, that tradition when he was ill. About a thousand people had heard his outstanding mawatta from him directly, and they obtained senad from him in a hadith. Uh, even after his death, people benefit from his book, which has exceptional uh, approval. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so he precedes Imam al-Bukhari. And and uh, I'm guessing there's more than, than this famous than, than this big story that leads to him getting such respect and such. Right. Um, <coughs> but uh, there was one other thing that uh, because of that 